I'm Father Mitch Paqua, and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. And tonight, we'll learn about Eastern Catholic churches, particularly in Ukraine. We'll talk about the life and mission of Venerable Metropolitan Andrei Sheptitsky. But first, we want to talk briefly with EWTN's Jim Pinto about what the EWTN media missionaries are doing. Jim, what's going on with the media? It's always great to be with you. Same thing going on with the media missionaries. We just need more media missionaries. That's why I'm here, Mm -hmm. to invite people to be a part. Mm -hmm. EWTN media missionaries keep in sight EWTN. That's what we do. We equip people to do that. Free material. You do this in written form. You do it electronically. Keep EWTN in sight. Why? Because EW10 keeps in sight Jesus Christ and and the Holy Catholic Church. One way we do that is when you join EW10, we send you periodically posters. These posters are absolutely beautiful by our creative services, graphic designs. We want you to post them anywhere you can on your church campus or beyond the church campus publicly. Posters like EW10 is everywhere, all the ways you can connect with EWTN. I think that has your picture on it, that one. So I I got that one, especially so you can keep me on for a few more minutes here. Sure. So all the ways. work. I'm from Chicago. (laughs) I deal with bribes. Go ahead. TV, radio, um, print form, all the ways you can connect. Smartphones, whatever it is, you know, EWTN is everywhere. We have uh, pro-life posters, which is so important right now. So much conversation about pro-life, pro-choice, abortion. What does the church teach? What do we believe? Programming that we have, Pro-Life Weekly. And so to post that around your campus, there in the parish, publicly, so that people can be informed. Kids posters, that's our latest poster that we sent out. Beautifully done, colorful. You just can't walk by it. You gotta look, all of our programming for kids. And just parents are looking for this, looking for something that kids could watch, be catechized. You can walk away from the TV set. You don't have to worry. EW10 provides, provides all of this. And then we have seasonal posters like Christmas and uh, Lent and Easter, uh, the week that changed the world, and just a stark picture of the crown of thorns. Boy, if this is posted someplace, people just don't walk by a crown of thorns. You know, they're like, oh, what is this right. about? What, what's happened? What's yeah. And then it has all the information on EW10, how you contact EW10, what the show is. And so we want you to join the media missionary so we can send you these and another material like the highlights. These are great too, so they're not posters that you post, but you just kind of hand them out all about EWTN. Keep EWTN in sight. In sight, in mind, out of sight, out of mind. There's some people that only you can reach for Christ and for the church. You know, I travel around a lot uh, in the country, and even though EWTN reaches 400 million homes plus, a lot of people in this country still don't know. So this is important. You can go to the EWTNmissionaries.com or you can also call their number 205-795-5771 or email us at EWTNmissionaries at EWTN.com. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate you. you being with us and letting us know about this. And we'll be back in just a couple minutes with our guests, so please stay with us.
Welcome back. Tonight we have a guest who is a deacon in the Kyiv Archeparchy of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. An archeparchy is the same thing as in the Roman diocese as an archdiocese. Um, in the Eastern Church, it's called an eparchy instead of a diocese. Um, he is a professor of liturgy at the Pontifical Oriental Institute in Rome. And tonight, he'll be sharing with us about the extraordinary life and ministry of Venerable Metropolitan Andrei Sheptitsky, who had guided the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church through two world wars and seven political regimes. Joining us from our EWTN studios in Cologne, Germany, please welcome Deacon Daniel Galadza. Father Deacon Daniel, welcome to our show. Thank you very much, Father. Christ is risen. Indeed, He is risen. It's good, good to have you with us. And first of all, you know, um, to understand, to help our audience understand that the uh, Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church is part of the uh, Byzantine uh, part of the Catholic Church. Is that not correct? That's right, yeah. So the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, or perhaps as it's known in the United States and Canada, Ukrainian Catholic Church is one of the many, over 20 churches that are part of the Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, is the largest of uh, the churches of the Catholic Church, the Universal Church, accounting for probably 99% of faithful worldwide. But the Ukrainian Greek Catholic or, or Ukrainian Catholic Church is the largest of the Eastern Catholic Churches with its, one could say, kind of home territory in present-day Ukraine and also in Eastern Europe, but now through the circumstances of history with uh, faithful and also bishops and uh, their eparchies, which is the same as dioceses, as you mentioned, uh, throughout the world, uh, almost on every continent. Yes, and it's uh, a very important church because the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church I believe is the largest of the Eastern churches in the Catholic Church, correct? That's right, yeah. So it's the largest of all the Eastern Catholic churches and it's the, also the largest of the Byzantine rite. So there are many rites, apart from the Roman rite, there's mm -hmm. the Byzantine rite, there are traditions that are Alexandrian, so the Coptic Christians or Armenian or various Syrian traditions, so Maronites mm -hmm. or Syro-Malabars or Syro-Malankar uh, Catholic Christians. Right, right. A lot of our audience is familiar that I have bi-ritual faculties with the Maronites who are part of that Syrian tradition. And, um, uh, and any Catholic can go to any one of these Eastern churches and receive the sacraments, you know, that they're always welcome. And I want to encourage people to do so. Uh, it's important to see, as Pope St. John Paul had frequently said, uh, from early in his pontificate, his second encyclical, uh, that we need to see the church breathing with both of its lungs. 
Uh, this is a very important part of the church. One of the things I also would like people to understand is that the last century, the 20th century, was the time of greatest persecution in the history of the church. Out of the 75 million martyrs in the history of the church, 40 million were killed in the 20th century alone. And of that 40 million, the majority were in the eastern part of the church. This is where the uh, atheism, socialism, and communism slammed like a storm against the shore of the church and pummeled the people, killing tens of millions of people in Eastern Europe and then in some parts of the Oriental Church in uh, Western Asia and Central Asia. So th this is a, a very important part of the history of the Eastern Church, martyrdom. Yes, exactly, Father. And that's why I'm very thankful to be able to talk about the life of Metropolitan Andrei Sheptitsky, who was the pastor of a church that experienced both of these world wars of the 20th century and was kind of caught between um, Nazi Germany, uh, Soviet Russia, uh, caught also on the front lines between East and West, also in terms of the Christian tradition. First of all, tell us a little bit about his life. When was he born and where did he live? So he was born in, on July 29th, 1865 into, in Western, what is today uh, presently Western Ukraine. At the time, it was the Austro-Hungarian Empire into a noble family of, uh, one could say, Ruthenian heritage. Um, so one could say perhaps uh, Polonized Ukrainians um, who at home, because they were a noble family, they had noble titles, um, they spoke French. He had ancestors who were archbishops of Lviv, Greek Catholics so or Eastern Catholic bishops of Lviv in Western Ukraine, also known as Lvov in Polish or Lemberg in German, a city that really uh, is a meeting place of various cultures and languages. And so he was born into this family, one of seven sons, the third son, and um, the, the first son to survive beyond be the teenage years. Mm -hmm. um, he had uh, also one brother that became a general in the Austrian and the Polish army. Um, so they found themselves in a way on different sides of uh, the second world of, of the time in the interwar period. And uh, another of his brothers, his younger brother, uh, Kazimir, who uh, became a monk later on and was his closest collaborator uh, and assistant uh, later on in life. 
So he had, um, kind of, one could say, the first half of Metropolitan Andrei Sheptitsky's life reads like a hagiography, born into a noble family, very pious family. His mother uh, wrote about his childhood, how all the sons uh, would pray the rosary and fall asleep with the, the rosary uh, on their fingers. Um, and they all received an excellent education. Metropolitan Andrei studied law, just as some of his other brothers in Krakow, in Poland. And he was able to undertake trips to Rome, uh, even to the Russian Empire, where he met uh, the philosopher Vladimir Solovyov. He even had a private audience with his family, with Pope Leo XIII, at which time he uh, told the pope about his desire to enter upon monastic life and in the Byzantine rite. Uh, even though he was baptized as a Roman Catholic and brought up um, in the Roman Catholic Church, he felt this longing to rediscover the traditions of his ancestors mm -hmm. and um, entered the Basilian order, which at the time was the only uh, monastic order in the, what is now called the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. Um, and it was at around that time reformed by the Jesuits, so it united a contemplative and an active apostolate. So mm -hmm. they were very much involved in education. Mm -hmm. and as you mentioned, later on, uh, he was chosen as. I was just going to say that as he, you he mentioned was chosen these as bishop things, at the age of thirty-five. Okay, uh, I was just going to to say that as you mentioned these things, it would be worth it for people to go back and understand the history of this period, because this is, you know, uh, he's. He's got people in uh, his brothers in the Polish army, the Austrian army, and, and you know, it's just what was going on. And for folks to understand in that time is the empires of Europe were doing body slams against each other and breaking down all of their empires. So by the by the end of the World War, the First World War, the Russian Empire it becomes Soviet Union. The Austro-Hungarian Empire loses having a, uh, an emperor. Poland didn't exist before that, but then after the war, Poland does exist. New countries like Czechoslovakia uh, come into being. I, this is great turmoil that didn't really settle down for uh, until relatively recently, and even still, and we'll talk about this later, the present war going on between Russia and Ukraine is the ongoing saga of these empires, you know, falling apart and reforming. And uh, so it's, it's worth knowing history so that you can see the context in which something, someone like Venerable Sheptitsky could be uh, uh, placed. So that's why he was Roman Catholic. Lviv was Poland. In fact, my family saved a Jewish family from Lviv, but later on it became part of Ukraine. So, because uh, it's mostly Ukrainian people. So, continue on about the, this background. That's right. Yeah, thank you, Father, for pointing that out. The uh, 
Episcopate of Metropolitan Reshiptetsky. He was first a bishop in uh, what was then called Stanislavov or Stanislaviv, and today is Ivano-Frankivsk, a town in western Ukraine. He was there bishop for 14 months before he was elected, uh, appointed Metropolitan of Lviv, so Archbishop, uh, the, the most senior cleric for all uh, Greek Catholics in the Habsburg Empire at the time. And um, he was the pastor of his flock at the beginning at the, when uh, they were under the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So this was an opportunity uh, to really help the church flourish. He would establish uh, theological associations, uh, theological schools, um, caring for the education of the clergy. At the same time, he cared about the well-being of his flock with education in villages and various mm -hmm. societies uh, promoting agriculture and uh, reading and education in the villages. Also, patron of the arts, being a member of the nobility, he was able to fund museums, uh, be a patron of artists, rediscover uh, iconography, and uh, promote contact also with Orthodox Christians, which at the time was not so common. Today we talk about ecumenism, but he was really a pioneer on that front. Mm -hmm. And of course, all this changes with the First World War when uh, the Russian Empire, uh, the Russian army invades Lviv, his uh, Episcopal see, and he is actually taken prisoner for three years in the Russian Empire. And he's held there. Um, in prison in a monastery, and he's able actually to communicate uh, with some of his clergy in kind of secret means by sending icons with inscriptions on the back of them uh, indicating that he's alive. Uh, and after the conclusion of uh, the First World War and his release, he was able to make uh, visits to uh, the United States, Canada, and even South America to visit his flock, which had been spread throughout uh, the world. Uh, both before and during the First World War. Mm -hmm. So he, the, the opportunities that were there during the Austro-Hungarian Empire really were, uh, it became a completely different situation. Um, one already had the experience of persecution uh, during the First World War, kind of a foretaste of what was to come during the Second World War uh, with much greater persecution um, mm -hmm. with monks and nuns and priests uh, being exiled um, and murdered. One has to remember that at that time, what is present-day Ukraine was caught between uh, Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia. In, on September 1st, 1939, the Soviet army came into Lviv and occupied Western Ukraine for two years. And so during this time, uh, the Greek Catholic Church was persecuted, um, women's uh, monasteries, convents were closed down and lots of the population was either imprisoned or sent into exile uh, in the Soviet Union. So it, he is a complex figure because uh, caring for his flock, he tried to do everything possible to help them survive and to preach the gospel, uh, preach um, peace in a time of war. That's why then in 1941, when the Germans arrived, the Nazi Germany um, attacked Soviet Russia, initially he welcomed them as liberators, which uh, it took him a few months to realize what was going on, this persecution of uh, Jewish people and the concentration camps. Once this information came to, to his uh, um, 
he came into this information, he then wrote letters directly to Himmler and Hitler condemning this. And he's actually one of the few Catholic hierarchs uh, that during the Second World War wrote directly to the Nazi German authorities to condemn this. And meanwhile, he was saving the children of um, rabbis in Lviv and in Galicia, in western Ukraine, uh, from um, concentration camps, from their uh, murder and torture. And in fact, today we know of many cases of uh, Jewish children being saved in the network of monasteries that uh, Metropolitan Andrei Sheptitsky had created, uh, the Studite Fathers. And uh, for example, the chief rabbi of the A Israeli Air Force, uh, Rabbi David Kahane, was uh, one of the children that was saved by Metropolitan Andrei Sheptitsky. The same thing with uh, Adam Daniel Rotfeld, um, foreign affairs minister of Poland. And all this is documented in the biography of uh, Kurt Levin, uh, who was able to flee to Israel and then to the United States, and was actually one of the witnesses at the beginning of the beatification process of Metropolitan Andrei uh, in 1958 in Rome. Mm -hmm. And again, to help uh, situate this, uh, you know, when he, uh, Lviv, as I, we mentioned, was part of Poland, and in the famous um, agreement between Germany and Soviet Union, Nazi Germany and Soviet Union, they had agreed to divide Poland up. So the communists took eastern Poland, the Germans invaded western Poland, and they divided up, and th this was the collapse of the brand new Polish uh, country. It just fell apart with two invaders, but it was a crisis for the Catholics in e what, what was then eastern Poland, western Ukraine. In addition, I think it's very important to understand how vicious the Soviet communists had been to the people of Ukraine in general. They had already starved over six million people to death in Ukraine. By take, they tried to destroy the system of private farms by starving the farmers to death taking their grain and their seed grain and leaving them with nothing, and they just died. So this was a major famine going on, and to the, when the Germans did invade, it was perceived as an improvement over the Soviets, given this mass starvation that had been going on in the 1920s and 30s under communist rule. Is that not correct? Exactly, exactly. So it's almost an impossible situation being stuck between a rock and a hard place, uh, knowing that uh, the Stalin regime in the Soviet Union had um, taken away the grain of uh, numerous uh, people in central and eastern Ukraine in the 1930s in uh, what is called the Holodomor, this famine genocide. Mm -hmm. So people in western Ukraine being under Polish rule were living in uh, relative peace and comfort at the time. So mm -hmm. seeing uh, the Soviets flee uh, was a welcome sign. But at the same time, in this transition, in, in between the fronts, uh, we have numerous examples of 
uh, clergy and laity being murdered viciously and brutally, um, all of this is very similar to what we hear in the headlines uh, in the last few months during this yes. war in Ukraine, people being um, monks, for example, in the town of Drohobych in western Ukraine being boiled alive or some crucified on walls, uh, really barbaric uh, torture at the hands of the Soviets. Uh, at, at the same time, then, very zealous pastors, for example, uh, the blessed uh, Emilian Koch, um, a priest who had studied in Rome, he was a married priest, he was uh, very much involved in uh, charitable work in his uh, parishes. He then was taken prisoner in a, a German concentration camp at Majdanek, and despite the opportunity to be released, he stayed with the imprisoned there because he said this is where uh, he can really fulfill his ministry as a priest to those people most in need. So really horrible death and suffering uh, coming from both sides and yes. many of these uh, confessors and, and martyrs have been beatified uh, by um, St. John Paul II during his visit to Ukraine in 2001. Yes, as a matter of fact, I helped do a documentary on Blessed Vasil Velichkovsky, who had been a prisoner uh, in concentration camps and given some of the poisons that later on the Russian Federation used against their enemies. Um, th this, this continued on as a horrible e experience. And you know, I, I know that there was some criticism of Venerable Sheptitsky for you know, welcoming the Germans, but when they came, they tried to portray themselves as liberator of the persecuted people. What they didn't realize is that within a year or so of their invasion of Ukraine, they would then start executing the Jewish people just you know, uh, you know, lining them up in ditches and machine gunning them. Even the Nazis who did that, you know, the machine guns, they went crazy themselves. You know, that's why they, they later on started the gas chambers because it was too horrific even for the Nazis. Some of the, the soldiers actually doing the crime. Um, and so, you know, between, again, the National Socialists, the Nazis, and the Communists, this destruction was part of you know, the mass execution of people by atheistic governments. Exactly, yeah. That's the barbarity of the Second World War that really was felt uh, many times in the, um, the Archeparchy of Lviv when Metropolitan André was the, the bishop there. And uh, seeing the uh, threat of further persecution, he prepared the church very well for uh, survival during the um, period of communist persecution, which lasted from the second arrival of the Soviet army in 1944 in Lviv. Uh, until 1989 when the church was able to come out of the, the catacombs, so to speak, uh, from persecution and was uh, able to be legalized again. Because um, having seen 
the imprisonment in the Russian Empire and having had two years of Soviet uh, persecution and also uh, these years of German Nazi occupation, Metropolitan Andrei had already ordained his successor, uh, who would later uh, become Cardinal Joseph Slipi, uh, already back in 1939 in December after a few years of Soviet persecution. Um, and his biography is uh, well known in the West, particularly because uh, his, the similarities of his life to the fictional uh, character of uh, Bishop Archbishop Lakota from Morris West's The Shoes of the Fisherman is so close that uh, when it's, I've heard this anecdotally that when uh, journalists would ask Cardinal Joseph Slipi about his 17 years in Soviet gulags, uh, he was there from 1945 until his release uh, during the Second Vatican Council with the aid of uh, American President John F. Kennedy and Pope John XXIII. The journalists would ask, is is it true that uh, the biography, the, the story, the novel, the movie, um, The Shoes of the Fisherman is about you? And he would say, no, 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 this is fiction. Uh, and then later on, they would ask details. How was it there in the Soviet imprisonment in the gulags? And he would say, well, just read The Shoes of the Fisherman. It's all in there. Um, so that's uh, <laughs> a fictionalized version of explaining that persecution. But uh, his memoirs of his life from his birth in the late uh, 19th century in Western Ukraine until his release from a Soviet imprisonment when, when he gets on the train um, in Moscow uh, in, 1960, uh, in the 1960s to return to Rome um, is really, it, it uh, goes through all these events that you've mentioned, the Austro-Hungarian um, rule in what is today Western Ukraine, uh, Polish rule, the Russian invasion, uh, Soviet and German invasion, uh, after 17 years of imprisonment. So uh, Metropolitan Andrei handpicked him as his successor as a bright uh, young theology student who studied in Innsbruck and was later rector of the seminary and would later on become the head of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church and uh, recognized as a cardinal um, by the Holy See. And there are many Before other such stories of confessors of the faith who were prepared and uh, for their ministry by the example of Metropolitan Andrei Sheptetsky. Father Deacon, we need to take a little break. We'll be back in just a minute, but I just want to let our audience know that if you want more information about Venerable Metropolitan Andrei Sheptitsky, you can go to the Metropolitan Andrei Sheptitsky Institute online. It is sheptitskyinstitute.ca and sheptitsky is s-h-e-p-t-y-t-s-k-y-institute.ca and don't any of you complain about the name being difficult they have more vowels per uh, in ratio to consonants than we Polish people do. So you're really doing pretty well with that name. So look that up. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Please stay with us.
We are speaking with Deacon Daniel Galadza of the Kyiv Arch Eparchy of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. And we're talking about Venerable Metropolitan Andrei Sheptitsky and, you know, his life and heroism uh, in an extraordinarily difficult set of circumstances. Um, as we mentioned at the beginning, uh, seven different uh, regimes, you know, the Austro-Hungarian, Polish, Soviet, and, com uh, and then Nazi, then back to the Soviets. All of these different governments have come and gone uh, over through his life. And, you know, it's also important to understand uh, something. And, and Father Deacon Daniel, uh, I'd like you to address this. It's the issue of the way the KGB, which was the communist secret police in the Soviet Union, the way they had manipulated the leadership of the Russian Orthodox Church. They had been very much using uh, clergy as agents. And how did that or did that have any effect on the uh, Greek Catholics in Ukraine? Oh, yes, of course. Um, the uh, end of the life of Metropolitan Andrei Sheptitsky is connected with this question. He died on November 1st, 1944, uh, when the Soviet army had already entered Lviv for the second time after uh, driving out uh, Nazi Germany. And even though it was in the interests of the Soviet government and also of the Russian Orthodox Church to uh, liquidate the Greek Catholic Church because um, it wasn't willing to collaborate with the Soviet authorities. Um, they had waited until Metropolitan Andrei Sheptitsky had died to make any moves uh, because they understood that he was such a great moral authority, um, not only in the church, but in general in society, and not just among uh, Ukrainians, but among all of society. So they waited until after his death to begin kind of smear campaigns, uh, even though they would acknowledge his work to save Jewish children and um, his attempts to save his flock um, in the horrors, during the horrors of war. But it was then soon after his death, so uh, the next year, that the KGB, the secret police of the Soviet Union, rounded up all the bishops of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church and sent them to Soviet prisons, uh, first for interrogation and then later on to gulags uh, for hard labor uh, throughout the Soviet Union. And some of them died very quickly and some of them have been beatified, uh, as I mentioned, by uh, Pope John Paul II in 2001, and uh, some survived. Uh, Cardinal Joseph Slipi, um, blessed Basil Velichkovsky or Vasil Velichkovsky, whose relics are in Winnipeg in Canada. Uh, so the KGB involvement there with the, the arrest of the clergy, or the bishops of the Ukrainian Catholic Church was crucial. But then one year later, um, there was an attempt to liquidate the whole church. So the KGB 
in a way forced the Russian Orthodox Church to organize a church council, one could put it in quotation marks because there were no Catholic bishops present, um, and yet uh, the Russian Orthodox Church at the time, uh, even though it was compromised by uh, the Soviet government and forced to collaborate with the secret uh, police of the Soviet Union. Now archival documents show that the head of their church at the time, Patriarch Alexei I, uh, did not want to, to convene this council. He said that it would be better to just have individual parishes or individual priests uh, convert uh, one at a time. But the, the Soviet government wanted a triumphal show of victory over uh, the Greek Catholic Church, and so they organized very cynically on the, the Sunday of Orthodoxy, the first Sunday of Lent in the Byzantine tradition, which is actually about uh, the veneration of icons and proper understanding of Christology, so the Orthodox faith and not about confessional Orthodoxy. They organized this um, pseudo-sobor, as many popes have called it since uh, it was convened in 1946, and anyone who refused to join the Russian Orthodox Church was then arrested, sent in to hard labor in Siberia, among them uh, many uh, monks, uh, diocesan priests, and also ma many married priests who went with their families as well. Um, and so it was this period from 1946 until 1989 that the church was considered illegal in the Soviet Union. Nevertheless, the church was uh, in the eyes of its faithful and its clergy and in the eyes of the Catholic Church throughout the world was not ever liquidated. It continued to serve in the catacombs, and there are many examples of um, secret uh, divine liturgies being celebrated in private homes, uh, even clandestine seminaries and monasteries functioning and evading uh, arrest from the KGB, or sometimes the, these priests, these monks and nuns would be arrested and nevertheless um, survived this, this period of persecution. In fact, uh, I had found out that Cardinal Slipi had uh, consecrated Blessed Vasil Velichkovsky secretly, along with other bishops. You know, and he had, you know, consecrated him a bishop in a hotel room in Moscow right before he went to Rome. And uh, these kind of, you know, secret masses and. Uh, the, the use of raisins that were fermented so that they could have wine to celebrate this liturgy, even in the prison camps, the, the gulag camps. These kind of, uh, the, the, the heroism needs to be better understood, you know, uh, by, you know, what people went through and seeing this when we worry about, you know, a few riots and things like that going here and we, we hear threats uh, against Catholic churches uh, because of our pro-life stance. This is nothing compared to what happened to the Christians in Eastern Europe and particularly Catholics. This was, uh, you know, the Greek Catholics in particular. It's, it's very important to understand That's this right. history and see what courage looks like among bishops, priests, monks, nuns, and lay people who suffered so much. That's right, yeah. And now we have a lot more information about this from uh, both 
archival material that was opened up um, in Ukraine very briefly in uh, Russia because it was closed soon after uh, the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Um, we have many autobiographies and memoirs that explain what uh, life was like in the catacombs. Uh, there are examples, like you said, about these clandestine liturgies, um, priests even taking, uh, having to use basic household items as a chalice and a paten, so an espresso cup and the little plate, and this would be their, um, their chalice and their paten, even examples of uh, the heroic metropolitan Volodymyr Sternyuk, a redemptorist, uh, who was then a head of the church in Ukraine for a time in the period of the persecution where he, they would use their glasses. Uh, they would use one side as a chalice and one side as a patent to consecrate the Eucharist and use their, their bodies as altars. And this is something we hear about in the lives of the saints in the early church. So it's really incredible, as you mentioned, earlier, this connection between the early church and the 20th century, this time of persecution. And you know, there's uh, one of my Jesuit brothers who had been a missionary in what was e then Eastern Poland when he arrived, Western Ukraine, as a Greek Catholic, uh, wrote a wonderful book called With God in Russia. Uh, you know, to read that and see what it was like as an American in that circumstance of communism and the Nazis and such, and then to read Solzhenitsyn and to read uh, One Day in the Life of uh, Ivan Denisovich or one of the other books like uh, uh, Gulag Archipelago. Uh, these books will give people a sense. Our schools in this in the United States are no longer teaching these things because there are, you know, there's more sympathy for some of the socialist and even Marxist perspectives. And, and false histories like Howard Zinn, you know, on American that, that are open to these things. So it's neglected. We have to take it on ourselves to understand what this meant and what we can learn from these heroes of faith. That's right. Uh, the example of Father Walter Chizik is one that is thankfully well known in the West because, uh, as you said, he was American-born, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, wrote in English. These yes. other biographies are um, they still need to be translated, whether it's the biography, the, the memoirs of Cardinal Joseph Slipi or the, the uh, accounts of the heroic life of uh, the brother of Metropolitan Andrei Sheptitsky, Blessed Cle Clement or Clementi Sheptitsky, who was a Studite monk in that order of monks that Metropolitan Andrei Sheptitsky revived at the beginning of the 20th century. These really moving stories of how he celebrated Easter, for example, in uh, a Soviet prison um, in 1951 before his, his execution on May 1st, 1951, where he received a care package with uh, some apples and shared them with the other prisoners rather than just eating them himself, where they were underfed and um, without any ability to uh, 
celebrate the divine liturgy or uh, to attend church services, this sharing even of these apples were seen as uh, this sharing of the joy of the resurrection. And many of these people that endured such incredible and unbelievable suffering, whether it's Father Walter Chizik or Blessed Clementi Sheptitsky, those who saw them saw that they really radiated almost this kind of light uh, and had this extreme peace even in the times of great persecution and war. It's, it's unbelievable. It's hard to imagine in, uh, in today's world. Yeah, I actually met another one of my Jesuit brothers who had been in a communist prison in China. And his mother sent him a care package uh, with uh, Neko candy, which is American candy. Uh, it's not about chocolate, sugary wafer kind of thing, but not real chocolate. But at any rate, in between each Neko, she put a host. So he was then, and then sent him a little medicine bottle with wine in it. He used a cap as his chalice and consecrated a host and broke it into as tiny pieces as good so he could give communion to his brother priests in the prison. And these stories of what it was like under atheism and communism and socialism, again, we, we have to know those. Now, let me move up to something more contained. We just have a few minutes and I know that uh, here in the United States, we are very, very concerned about the horrendous uh, suffering that's going on. Europe has been at peace, except for the former Yugoslavia, until now. And then this winter, we see Europeans break out in another war, a horrible war, uh, between Russia, the Ru Russian Federation, in Ukraine. How are things now in Ukraine? What, what's going on that you can report to us, uh, especially from the perspective of the Greek Catholic Church? Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you for that question, Father. From the perspective of the Greek Catholic Church, uh, we've never forgotten that time of persecution uh, during the Soviet era, and so uh, the ability to serve divine liturgies um, for uh, soldiers on the front or people in bomb shelters is something that actually uh, the older clergy have uh, personal experience with and the younger clergy have learned through the reading memoirs or hearing uh, the edifying stories from the older clergy. So during the first wave of bombing in Kyiv, um, even a student of mine at the Kyiv Seminary, who is now a priest, uh, pictures of him serving a divine liturgy in a bunker, uh, I think went were circulated very widely over the internet. They went yes. viral, so to speak. Um, so the need to be grounded in Christ and the gospel is something that is, is always present before the eyes of all the faithful, uh, the clergy, the monks and nuns and the bishops of the Greek Catholic Church and mm -hmm. uh, this understanding of being stuck between um, uh, a rock and a hard place as it was in the 20th century between various uh, oppressive and opposing powers is something that is remembered to this day. And uh, despite the difficulties and the suffering uh, that is uh, encountered today in Ukraine, 
um, the head of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, uh, his Beatitude Sviatoslav, um, always reminds the faithful in, in daily messages that to continue praying, to uh, remember the joy of the resurrection, and that the truth of God, the truth of Christ, uh, will always overcome and has already overcome. And so this gives the faithful hope. Um, and for viewers in the West, uh, perhaps they can understand the situation of the faithful in Ukraine, that it's often very difficult um, to find uh, good allies uh, because one is trying, to, the, the faithful in Ukraine are trying to be faithful to uh, the Catholic Church, to the gospel, uh, to the teachings of the church. And uh, in a time of war, when being some faithful are being murdered, uh, and this is being documented. Um, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's just horrific uh, to nevertheless remember uh, that one must uh, remain in the love of Christ to love one's neighbor and to forgive um, wrongdoing. Uh, it's extremely difficult, but it's, uh, it's, it's part of being tested in the faith. And it's important to understand that on one hand, there is legitimate self-defense by the people of Ukraine against an unjust invasion. And it's possible for uh, a Catholic to, to stand up and defend their country, their family, and their own lives. But at the same time, one may not hate the enemy who does the oppression because at that point, you go down to their level. You don't want to let the evil that is done to you make you part of the evil as well. You want to, again, rightfully defend yourself and do so well, and at the same time, the same time, love your enemy with hopes that they have a conversion away from this evil. That's our goal. Would that not be the mentality of the Greek, Greek church? Exactly, Father. Um, and on the, the church front, it's also very difficult because Ukraine is a country that um, probably the majority of the population uh, is Orthodox. And within Ukraine, um, the, the faithful uh, Greek Catholics and Orthodox um, generally live in peace. Uh, the Greek Catholic Church has tried to um, you know, turn the other cheek to ask for forgiveness and to work towards reconciliation, um, even uh, with, with the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, after the Greek Catholic Church was liquidated in the Soviet Union in 1946, there were uh, efforts, particularly in the 90s to, then the 2000s, to have some sort of reconciliation. But unfortunately, nothing has really uh, come about with that on any official level. But nevertheless, it's always, it's crucial to be reminded of loving God with one's whole heart, mind, and soul, and also loving one one's neighbor. And uh, what does that mean? Who is our neighbor? Yeah. Well, Father Deacon, 
Daniel, we have to go. I'm afraid we're running out of time. I want people to know that they can go to the Ukrainian Catholic Crisis Media Center, which is uccmc.org to find out more information about what's ongoing war. And may the Lord bless you and all of our viewers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father Deacon, for being with us. I want to thank all of our viewers. This network is brought to you by you. We can do this kind of in interview from our studios in Germany uh, because of the support that you give us. So keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll pay our bills too. God bless you and thank you.